So uh, we kind of had to scramble this week, um, and uh, I am diverting uh, for a few weeks from our Matthew series. Um, usually we spend one week a year on um, uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, um, drawing near to those passages which inform how we think about people. Um, this, the, one of the first sermons I preached six years ago was on Sanctity of Life Sunday, and it was on Mark 12. Um, I had been planning on preaching on the implications of these image of God passages next week. And so this week, we're going to sort of leverage the opportunity to give you a what I think is a, is, a, is a rooted theological comprehension of the image of God in Christ's teaching so that next week when we apply that, uh, that theological notion of the image of God to how we relate to our society and how we relate to our culture and how we, how we relate to civil unrest and, and, and political unrest and how we relate to our current context, and um, we're going to have all the foundation we need. So... I want everybody to turn to Mark 12 with me. Mark 12. And hold up your Bible when you're there. Um, Today I want to carefully walk with you through the scriptures in order to answer a very important question. What does it mean to be human? This morning I want to show you what I believe about... I want to show you that what you believe about humanity influences nearly every decision that you make. Let me repeat that. What you believe about human beings is going to influence nearly every decision you make. While we read and while we talk, I want you to be thinking about the decisions we make in relation to one another. About social media, about cultural prejudice, about civil division and racism, about the elderly and the orphans and widows and adoption. A lot of the implications of this structure we're going to deal with next week. But I also want you to be thinking about you, about how you spend your time and your resources and your attention. I want us to look into the scriptures this morning and try and define the worth of a human life. Because if we understand the worth of this gift, we may be better equipped to decide what to do with it. So I want you to turn to Mark 12. And we're going to start in verse 13. We're going to spend most of our time this morning working in a passage that's, I think, sometimes misunderstood. So I want you to try and read it with new eyes. I want you to try and visualize the action of this story and pay very close attention to the words that Jesus uses. So we're going to read from 13. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk... And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness? And inscription is this, they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, so where do we start? Remember that the questions that you bring to the Scripture will determine the quality of your time in Scripture. You have to ask questions of the text. And you have to take the time to find answers to those questions within the text. The first and perhaps the most important question we have to ask is, what is Jesus talking about? In in order to answer that question, we have to take a step backward and look at the character of Jesus' ministry. I want you to think about Jesus' instruction and think most particularly about Jesus' responses to questions and to people. Think about Jesus with Nicodemus or Jesus with the Samaritan women. People came to Jesus and asked Jesus questions about the here and the now. Questions about politics and sectarian disputes. Questions about water and food. And how does Jesus respond? Living water. New birth. Kingdom of heaven. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Jesus pierces through the question. Always. The question about the here and now is an opportunity for Jesus to draw attention to the kingdom and the gospel and God himself. He always sees motives and he always sees hearts and he will never be distracted from his mission. You want bread? Consume my flesh. You want water? Come and get the living water. You want to walk again? Your sins are forgiven. So, is this passage about taxes? Truly, think about it. Is this passage about taxes? I mean, the question is certainly about taxes, but is the answer. Look again at the story. What does Jesus do as soon as he hears the question? He says, bring me a coin. (laughs) Now, as far as I can tell, there are only two reasons that Jesus might have asked for a coin. One, Jesus, the king of the universe, has forgotten what a coin looks like. And because he wasn't sure how to answer the question, he suspects that somewhere in the coin there might be a clue. He needed to reference the coin for his own purposes. Maybe he was stumped. He was just buying time. Uh, Probably not. Two, Jesus, the king of the universe, is piercing through the question. And he's shining a bright light on the hearts of men. He asked for a coin to make a point. To highlight something so patently obvious that only a blind sinner could miss the significance. He's teaching. He asks for a coin to look at because the answer to the question is fundamentally related to the coin itself. And he's implying, I think, that these men whose pockets and purses clink with coins like this one every day need only open their eyes to see a a staggering truth that has been clearly communicated by the grace of God to callous rebels from day one. So Jesus asks for a coin on purpose. Jesus has asked a simple question about physical things, politics and personal property. Should I give some of, my, some of my money to Caesar? It's mine. It's not his, but he's asked for some of my money and I don't want to give it to him. May I keep it? Is it lawful to keep my money? And Jesus, who could have simply said yes or no, asks for a coin. And I want to show you the coin, just like the coin that Jesus asked for. I want you to see what he's seeing and what he's showing the crowd because it's significant. This is a Roman denarius. Now, the first time I preached this sermon, I found one from 
the first century, the one that he was actually using. I didn't do that this time. This is Marcus Aurelius, actually. I think that's fascinating. But this is a Roman denarius. It's a piece of pressed silver that operated as Roman currency. The value of the silver was was nearly half of the value of the coin. So the coin actually represented wealth. Like our currency, the denarius was symbolic of a certain amount of stuff. In this case, the denarius symbolized one day's wages in the Roman military. Enough to buy some wine, bread, and meat. Also, like our currency, the worth of this coin depended entirely on the Roman Empire. They could, and indeed they did on multiple occasions, decide that certain coins were worthless. So how could they simply decide on a whim that the denarius meant nothing? Roman currency is notable for one remarkable feature. The image of Caesar... The coins that were held, distributed, and traded in every region of the Roman Empire were pressed with the image of the emperor. Why? To proclaim over every exchange, over every loan, over every market transaction, this is your king. This coin belongs to him. He created it. He stamped his image upon it. And when he asks for it back, you give it back. It's his. It's not yours. You may count your coins and rejoice over your wealth, but at the end of the day, your stuff is is not your stuff. Caesar's image is pressed upon that coin because that coin belonged to Caesar. And if he showed up at your house and said, give it back, is any Roman citizen going to say, this is mine? No. So Christ looks up and says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And the people marveled. For years, this answer baffled me. This is a turn you don't expect, or at least I didn't. The question was about taxes, and the first half of Jesus' answer is about taxes. But why include that last sentence? What has taxes to do with giving to God? This, I think, is where the passage is most often misunderstood. A lot of readers have approached this passage, at least in our context, and they think that Jesus is giving a nuanced answer to the question about taxes. It's as if Jesus is saying, give to your government everything you owe to your government, except in those cases where you're asked to give something or do something which undermines your obedience to God. In those cases, God's authority trumps government authority. In other words, submit to your authority, unless that authority contradicts the ultimate authority, which is God. Now, I think that's a valid implication of Jesus' words. But I don't think that that's what Jesus means. Do you know why? Because the people marveled. They were amazed at his answer. You can imagine a hush over the crowd You see, these people are Jews, citizens of Roman-occupied Palestine. They've been in a state of either rebellion or uncomfortable submission to the Roman Empire for over 200 years. And the Jewish people are politically divided. Some Jews welcome Rome. They learn Greek. They seek Roman citizenship. They embrace the stability of the Roman Empire. And some Jews, they hate Rome. 
They actively rebel against Roman dictatorship. Most Jews are non-activists. They've grown used to Roman occupation. But this conversation, the conversation about taxes, about God's sovereignty over Roman occupation, about tributes and taxes and allegiance, had to have been at the forefront of community dialogue for centuries. Jesus' answer, if it was merely political theology, if it merely consisted of submission to a hierarchy of authorities, was not new. It was not unique. If Jesus' answer was merely political, the people would not have hushed in amazement. See, I think Jesus is saying something profound, and I think that's why the people marveled. Look back at the coin. How did Jesus know that the coin belonged to Caesar? Whose image is on that coin? Whose image? Caesar's. So Jesus says that people, as soon as they see Caesar's image on that coin, should know to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. It belongs to him. You should see that image and think, that's Caesar's coin. So what bears the image of God? We need to be Bible readers. Bible readers soak in the scriptures. Bible readers know the stories of Adam and Abraham and Moses and Gideon and David and Elijah like the back of their hands. Bible readers see patterns emerge as the story of scripture unfolds and Bible readers pick up on Jesus' hints. Jesus' generation is a generation of Bible readers. Second temple period, Jews were soaked in the scriptures. It was a different world. The entire social structure revolved around the scriptures. At the pinnacle of the social and political hierarchy stood the Bible experts, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Many of Jesus' rabbinical peers had the Pentateuch memorized, word for word. To memorize the text of Scripture was a virtue not only among the theological elite, but also among the masses of Jesus' contemporaries. And when we read Jesus' instruction, we find that his words are riddled with biblical allusion. He's constantly using words or phrases that tickle the reader's memory. When Jesus teaches, he teaches with the shadows of Jacob, Isaac, and Joseph. He teaches with the shadows of the flood, shadows of the Red Sea, shadows of Jonah. He whispers into your memory and forces you to recall ancient sacred images. Every word he uses is chosen carefully. So when you read the words of Jesus, you should hunt for these illusions. And when you see the crowds marvel, or when the crowd is hushed when they hear his answer, it's a clue to stop and to reread. Christ has just tickled the memories of Bible readers. And that's what happened. As soon as Jesus asked, whose likeness... Is this likeness, they think. Where have I heard that word, likeness? Give to God what belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. What could he mean, likeness? And all of a sudden, in a moment, the creation narrative, the story of the beginning of all things that was told as a bedtime story to every Jewish child in Palestine for centuries and millennia, rushed into the memory of every member of that crowd. And like clockwork, the words of Genesis 1 scrolled through their minds. Then God said, let, make, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man is set apart at the pinnacle of creation, distinct from all creatures. God set man and women over his creation as stewards. God fashioned Adam from the dust, and almost immediately he gave him a job to do. Tend the garden, name the animals, reign over the birds and the fish and the flocks. God established a unique relationship with man as his possession, who would act as his steward over all creation. See, the image of God was a stamp of possession. It was a sign of stewardship. The image of God meant that man was uniquely equipped under God to reign over and govern and care for God's world. We were to have reigned, you see, over the whole world. We were to embody the care, the love, the imagination of God. We were to be like God in all the right ways, bringing order, tending creation, reflecting compassion. We were to be like God in the right ways, but it wasn't enough. We were convinced we could be like God in every way. God fashioned Adam out of the dust and set him as steward over the garden. Yet Adam forsakes the word of God, is naked and ashamed, and his children are cursed forever. God rescues Noah and sets him upon a renewed earth. Noah drinks of the fruit of the vine, is drunk, naked and ashamed, and his children are cursed forever. God chose the people of Israel as a people for His own possession. Stewards over the promised land. His people turn from God to idols, are naked before their enemies, and their children are exiled from God's presence. And God sets leaders over the exiled people of Israel, God's vineyard. The leaders of Israel reject their true master and refuse to lead the people to reconciliation. Take a moment to look up just at the beginning of Mark 12. Glance back at Mark 12 and read with me. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away out empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now I wanted to read this parable because I want you to understand the full force of Jesus' words. Jesus is not merely taking advantage of a teachable moment. 
Jesus' answer to this question about taxes was not given in a vacuum. It's not as if Jesus said, it's funny you mentioned taxes. That reminds me about some general truth that you might find helpful. No. Jesus' answer has everything to do with this parable. Jesus turns to the leaders of Israel with fire in his eyes and he says, in every area of your people's history from the outset, you have refused to recognize that you were created in the image of God. You were created as stewards of his property. You were fashioned for his purposes, for his renown. You are not your own. You are God's. Give to God the things that are God's. Jesus looks to these leaders of Israel, to the Pharisees and the Herodians, who refuse to lead the people to reconciliation. And he holds up a coin. He says, give to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image, and give to God that which bears God's image. You see, after a lifetime of refusing to give tribute to their true king, these men had the audacity to ask whether they should give tribute to Caesar. Your true king has been graciously seeking reconciliation with his people for millennia. And you're asking whether you ought to give tribute to a corrupt dictator whose armies ransacked your land, ravaged your families, and torched your possessions? Give tribute to God. By grace alone, he has given life and purpose and opportunity for reconciliation and hope and love. You bear his image. You are his servant. Turn your attention from created things to creator. Stop worrying about your stuff and start worrying about your soul. You bear God's image. And that means something. It means that you are not your own. You belong to God. You are a steward of His possessions. It means that your stuff is not your stuff. It means you've been charged to steward over your work and your money and your home and your children. It means that your life has purpose. And it means that you'll be held accountable. And if you're anything like me, if you're anything like these men standing for Jesus with a coin... You're twice more concerned about your stuff and your rights and your plans than you are about your Creator. God is jealous for His image bearers. Look, our tendency when we read passages like this is to think of rebellion nationally and historically. When we read these texts, we think often about ancient Israel, and rightfully so. This passage is a parable about Israel's devotion to created things and their rejection of their creator. God chose Israel and he led them powerfully and lovingly through the wilderness. He placed them in a land flowing with milk and honey. He made a good place for his people and he set them in the promised land as stewards of his possession. You might say that he set them in the promised land as stewards over their own hearts. But Israel turned away from God, and they devoted themselves to lusts of the flesh. They turned away from the glory of God and worshipped idols. They preferred created things over creator. And even though as a jealous husband, God rescued them and sought their hearts over and over again, even though he sent prophet after prophet to caution their destruction and proclaim the true hope, 
And true provision can only be found when they return to the husband of their youth. They rejected God and his messengers. So indeed, Christ's words are about Israel, but they aren't only about Israel. Listen, Paul says that the stories about Israel, about the lost law and the corrupt kings and the exiled people, those were written as an example for the church. These things have been written for your benefit. The nation of Israel is a shadow. So when you read the Old Testament, you need to be thinking about your life and about your faith. When you read about Israel, you're reading about you. Their faithfulness is a picture of you. their faithlessness is a picture of your faithlessness. Their idolatry is a picture of your idolatry. Just like Israel suffered under the bondage of slavery, you suffered under the bondage of slavery to sin. Just as the people painted their thresholds with the blood of an innocent lamb, you were delivered from death by the blood of the Lamb of God. Just as God miraculously delivered the people of Israel from their oppressors, you have been miraculously delivered from the dominion of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Just as the people were rescued from slavery through the waters of the Red Sea, you've been rescued from slavery to sin through the symbolic waters of baptism. Just as the people of Israel were lovingly, powerfully escorted step by step through the wilderness, so you are daily escorted step by step through trial and temptation and sorrow. Just as God gave every single day bread from heaven, So you are to pray every single day. Give us this day our daily bread. And just as the people were finally led after years in the wilderness to the promised land, so God will lead his sons and daughters to the new heaven and the new earth. Their redemption is a shadow of your redemption and their journey is a shadow of your journey. So when Christ weaves together a story about Israel's rebellion you need to think very carefully about the decisions you're making. About the time and money and attention you've invested. God is jealous for his image bearers. You see, Israel had a choice. Seek joy in created things or seek joy in creator. Pursue peace in stuff in possessions, in thrills, in people, or pursue peace in reconciliation with God. Invest God's resources in temporary satisfaction, in temporary possessions, in temporary relationships, in temporary kingdoms, or invest God's resources in God's kingdom so that God would be famous, so that God's fame would be championed, so that God's image would be bright. Upon what do you set your heart's affections? God is jealous for your heart. Give to God the things that are God's. What occupies your thoughts? God is jealous for your mind. Give to God the things that are God's. How do you spend his resources? You bear his image. You're not your own. Do you seek joy in stuff? In the perfect home or nice cars or comic books? Is that what makes you happy? 
Let me ask you a tough question. Can a fire that destroys your home leave you hopeless? Can a wreck that destroys your family leave you hopeless? You bear God's image. You are not your own. Give to God the things that are God's. You have a choice too. Just like Israel, every moment represents a decision. Every morning, as soon as you wake, you will choose where you are going to seek joy. You will choose with every conversation, with every daydream, every time you open that browser, every time you open the door to your office, every time you have to pick up your husband's underwear off the bathroom floor, every time you receive a credit card application, every time you go shopping, you will choose creation or creator. Will you seek peace through prayer, through scripture, through fellowship, through service? Or will you seek peace at the glass or at the table? Will you spend your time and money on hobbies, on subscriptions, on tickets? Or will you spend your time and money and yourself on the church? This is the wilderness. You're not supposed to settle down here. God is jealous for his image bearers. He's jealous for your heart's affections. He's jealous for your mind's attention. And he is jealous for your worship. He has sought after your heart incessantly. You feel it, don't you? When you're tempted to turn to the world for pleasure, you feel the tug, the Spirit's work. It's time to reconsider how you live. Seriously. You have homework this week. I want you to leave this place, and as soon as you can, before the frenzy of the week overwhelms your thoughts, I want you to write three words on a post-it note. I'm serious. I want you to write three words on a post-it note. I want you to stick it to your bathroom mirror. Three words. Okay? Time. Money. Mind. Time. Money. Mind. Three arenas. Your time, your money, and your mind. Three districts that belong exclusively to your king. Three fields you've been asked to till and sow and harvest. Time, money, and mind. And when you wake up every morning, when you stumbled crusty-eyed into your bathroom this week and lay fresh eyes on that post-it note, I want you to ask yourself questions like these. Now, I'm going to send this list to you over the realm as soon as we're done. I'm serious. These are tough questions, but they will help you index your life. All right, time. Wait, guys. Pulling the spit out of your beard. Do you have a beard? I don't know if you drool. I drool. I don't know how that's helpful. Wake up, open the, stumble into the bathroom. You see these. Words, time. Ask yourself these questions. How much time did I spend yesterday on my phone, on social media, or on Netflix? 
Okay, now, if you have a new smartphone, it's probably going to be able to tell you, and it's demoralizing, theoretically speaking. When you see it north of two hours, and you're like, two hours? I mean, not me. Like, mine, mine just taps out 15 minutes max. <laughs> Ask yourself, how much time did I spend yesterday on my phone, or on social media, or on Netflix, or Amazon Prime, or Hulu, or whatever, your television, whatever. Two, outside of work, did I face screens more than I faced people? Three, how many words were exchanged yesterday with the people I most care about? Okay? Just start with those three questions. Get your gears rolling. All right? You stumble through the time questions and you're starting to feel a little guilty. Money. If people knew how I spent my money, would they call me careful, wise, and generous? Ask yourself that question. Not, by the way, so that you can work to a point where people would call you wise and careful and generous. The point is that you are here to embody God, to represent His reign. And He is careful, wise, and generous. Okay. Two, how much of my money this month was spent to secure my pleasure? And three, have I upgraded my phone, car, home, fill in the blank, every time I've had an opportunity. Okay? Finally, mind. This is a tough one, and it's at the center of my attention because what I do every day. First question, did I choose, did I choose what I read yesterday, or was it fed to me by an algorithm? Think about it. It's terrifying. Was my reading spent like this? It's not just social anymore. Everything's algorithm. Your news feed. You have a subscription to Wall Street Journal or, 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 or Fox News or whatever. It's, it's all driven to give you dopamine uh, hits every time you click a link. Anyways, we can talk about that later. Did I choose what I read yesterday or was it fed to me by an algorithm? Two, what did I listen to yesterday and what did it cause me to think about? You are a steward of your time. By the way, even if you're on the road, on the way to work, that, that's time you are stewarding. It's not yours. You just have the same radio station set. You haven't changed it in three years. Think twice. You know what's crazy? You can, you can listen through an audiobook of the Bible in 75 hours. And a lot of you guys spend way more than 75 hours on the road in a long time, in three months. What did I listen to yesterday and what did it cause me to think about? And three, when my friends 
children, spouse, co-workers spoke to me yesterday? Did I listen carefully and did I think about their words? These are not exhaustive. These nine questions I've, I've sort of drafted and I'm going to send to you so that you can get your gears rolling to index how you're spending God's resources because they don't belong to you. I want you to index the time, money, and attention you spend on you. See, there's a principle in economics called opportunity cost. And you can't make good decisions about your money or your labor or your investments without it. Opportunity cost means, in basic terms, what you could have done with your resources if you hadn't done that. It was kind of weird. Let me repeat it. Opportunity cost means what you could have done with your resources if you hadn't done that. Let me give you an example. If I own a fence building company, I probably like building fences. And say I make $1,000 on every fence I build, and I can build a fence once a week. Basic math tells me that I'm going to make $52,000 this year building fences. Right? Are we tracking? But that doesn't factor for opportunity cost. Say I have three brothers, and each of my brothers also loves building fences. And I've got a good reputation in my neighborhood, so I know that if I spent my week going home to home, asking my neighbors whether they like a new fence, my business can average three new fence builds a week. So if I spent my time selling fences, my business income could be $156,000. Basic math says that I made $52,000 this year. Opportunity cost says that I lost $104,000 this year because I didn't take advantage of the opportunities I had been offered. And this is why opportunity cost matters to you because every day you're offered opportunities to model the care and the compassion and the patience, and the love, and the mercy, and grace of God. That's your opportunity as an image bearer. Every day you're given dozens of opportunities to model God's character, and God's mission, and God's kingdom, and God's love with your time, and with your money, and with your mind. And the return on that investment is priceless. That's explicit in the scriptures. The return on any investment towards God's kingdom is priceless. And if that's the case, then the opportunity cost of wasting your life on Netflix and social media is infinite. Think about that for a second. If your promised reward for investing in the kingdom is priceless, then every opportunity you waste to do that is an infinite waste. See, I'm not asking you to index your time and your money and your mind because I want you to feel bad. I'm highlighting the opportunity cost of the stupid decisions that we make every day.
Because the opportunity cost of 40 minutes wasted mindlessly flipping through your news feed while your kids are shoved away in the next room is incalculable. And I wrote that sentence for me. And because this, the return on the time you spend modeling God is priceless. It's just kingdom economics. But one more thing. If you're anything like me, you're going to run through this list and you're going to feel a heavy burden of guilt. You're going to face your waste with open eyes and you'll be tempted to despair. I get it. I get it, man. But before you spiral, let me read you something. This is from Colossians. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You want to know why you shouldn't for a moment despair because of your waste, because of all of your missed opportunities? Because God in His mercy sent His Son in whom we have forgiveness for all the wasted dollars and all the wasted time and all the wasted attention and for all the missed opportunities. Christ is the image of God and He didn't miss a single opportunity and in Him we have redemption. And you know what that means? That means when God looks at you, He indexes Jesus. Amen? Amen. We need to sing praise because we stand free of condemnation. But our freedom from condemnation should not fuel further waste. Amen? So this week, dwell on it. Think about it. Index your time. Think carefully about your decisions. And next week, we're going to deal with how the image of God relates to Not only how we index our own lives, but how we relate to others. Okay? Amen.